0: Hello, I'm Heather Keck,
1: and I'm Andy Keeter. Welcome
0: to the 43026 43026 Podcast.
1: Our goal is to provide content to inform, promote, and unite our community.
0: This podcast is brought to you from our studios at the Hilliard Chamber of Commerce in wonderful Old Hilliard.
1: The chamber has a long history of fueling connections, community growth, and helping local businesses thrive.
2: Hello, and welcome to the 43026 Podcast, Thursday edition. I am here by myself today, Heather is busy with other things, but I would like to, I'm looking forward to this podcast, today's guest is mine and Heather's good friend, Paul Lambert. Um, Paul served on the school board with us for several years, but Paul is a long time Hilliard community resident, he's an expert in many things among those, the hilliard darby Accord, and the school funding, and all things school related. So. But before that, we have a lot of things going on in Hilliard this weekend. The um, celebration at the station is tonight from 6:30 to 9:30, and then on Saturday we have motivation at the station, with high-intensity fitness at seven, followed by mad happy yoga at eight o'clock. Fair truck food is this Saturday at the fairgrounds from 11 to 8. Hilliard Pride, brought to you by Rainbow Hilliard, is this Saturday at Station Park from 12 to 3 o'clock. And then on Saturday, Hilliard Education Foundation will be hosting Jess and Judy, a tribute to Judy Garland, starring Broadway veteran and Hilliard Davidson graduate Jessica Grovet. Um Tickets can still be purchased at the Hilliard Education Foundation's website, and all proceeds of this event go to the Education Foundation and the Hilliard Arts Council. Thank you for joining us today, and now here's Paul Lambert. We'll be right back.
1: Hello and welcome to today's 43026 podcast. Our guest today is somebody that's been very active in our community. Um, when I first met him, we weren't necessarily friends or necessarily agreed on much, um, but as we've gotten to know each other, we've turned in to be good friends and uh, longtime school board member, longtime community member Paul Lambert. So welcome Paul.
3: Hi there Thanks.
0: Hi, Paul. Hi, Heather. Good to see you.
1: Paul, let's start out with, uh, since this is the 43026 podcast about Hilliard, what brought you and your family to Hilliard?
3: We uh, we moved here in 1979 to um, Gulfview Woods, if you guys know that neighborhood. I
0: do, off Treview.
3: Yeah, sure. So our, ours was one of the very first houses built in Gulfview Woods. It was before we had kids and we chose that particular neighborhood because it was about halfway between our two places of employment. Um, and it's back when, you know, they were really starting to build houses, just around, uh, 270. Uh, so a nice new neighborhood. And we thought, yeah, this would be great to live out here.
0: Was that Hilliard Schools? Yeah, was Scioto schools. schools or whatever
3: it was. It was, yeah, it was Scioto-Darby Local Schools still at the time. Yeah.
1: And then from there, you moved into Brown Township. Was that next?
3: Yeah, in 1988, uh, we built a house out in Brown Township about where, uh, Brown Elementary is now. So we got to watch, uh, um. Uh, Probably being built kind of in our front window out there.
1: And then you finally moved into the city? Yeah, finally after, <laughs>
3: uh, after 40 uh, years of living in the Hillier community, we finally actually live in the city proper now.
1: That's great. And what's your background professionally? Um,
3: I, I started um, school. I came to, to uh, Columbus from Charleston, West Virginia, where I grew up to attend Ohio State. And uh, when I was a sophomore at Ohio State, I had the opportunity to, uh, I was actually looking for a job, and I found a a job by luck uh, at this little startup company called CompuServe. Um, There was about 80 employees at the time, and we were uh, down in Grandview. Um, So that was was my start. Well, professionally,
1: you worked at CompuServe. How long did you work there?
3: I was at CompuServe for 27 years. So from the time, it was uh, from 1973, um, again, when we were a little startup company with just a handful of employees until uh, uh, 2000, which was after uh, the company was acquired, half by uh, AOL and half by WorldCom. I ended up going with the WorldCom uh, half of the split, which is uh, the part of the company that actually built the, uh, the building on Britain Road, which is now the Verizon building. So that was the headquarters for the, the group I was in.
1: So describe what ConfPServe was back then. For people younger than you or me people might probably won't even remember the name CompuServe.
3: Yeah, that's sad. The company's been gone for about 20 years now, so a lot of people have not heard of it. Uh, it started uh, as a, it's a little bit like the Amazon web services story, and people are familiar with them, in that our parent company was in an entirely different business. It, it was an insurance company. Uh, Columbus was a uh, uh, just a seed uh, bed for many insurance companies back in those days. And uh, this was one of them, it was called Golden United Insurance. They had finally grown large enough that they thought it was uh, uh, time to get a, a computer, a data processing system in to help just run all their policy uh, work and cut checks and receive premiums and all that. And so the uh, the owner of the insurance company had a son-in-law in school out in Arizona, a guy named Jeff Wilkins, um, and he asked Jeff, hey, if I'm going to buy a computer, what kind should I get? And Jeff says, hey, I got an idea for you. Instead of just buying a computer for the insurance business, why don't you buy one of these newfangled time-sharing machines and you can um, run the insurance business on the, the thing at night and then during the day we can sell time to other businesses around Columbus and maybe we can uh, make your, uh, we call them data processing departments, DP departments, maybe we can make that into an income center rather than a cost center for the company.
0: That's so, a
3: good idea. So, so that's how uh, CompuServe got started. And that would have been about what time frame? Sixty nine was when the company yeah. started, and uh, that was
0: before I was born. Yeah,
3: <laughs> that, that hurt a little bit. But so we grew as a uh, as a local timesharing company through the uh, through the sixties and early seventies. Then uh, technology changed, and the mini computer came along, and we found that some of the companies that were using our services on a time-sharing basis were finding it cheaper to go buy their own mini computers and, and work on their own. Um, systems. Um, so we had to decide how are we going to compete in this marketplace and we changed over to a kind of business where we sold um, applications and so instead of selling to engineers and people who knew how to program computers, we began selling to uh, chief financial officers and uh, chief sales officers and CEOs of companies with uh, systems that would help them do financial management and um, different kinds of research. A, a whole series of product lines. And that business was was pretty profitable. And then along came the microcomputer, uh, particularly the IBM PC. And we thought, okay, we've got a lot of these people who are using the applications on our time-sharing systems now can do the same thing on their home PCs uh, or in their office PCs for a fraction of the cost. What are we going to do now? And uh, one of the young engineers in our group said, hey, you know, I've got a bunch of guys I'm in a computer club with. Maybe we can. Uh, figure out ways of connecting all these guys with uh, hobby computers together um, on at nighttime on our systems when they're not busy uh, with the commercial stuff, and so that was the beginning of a thing called the CompuServe Information Service, uh, which eventually grew to be you know the major uh, we kind of call it uh, uh, Internet version one um, that we offered things like um, email. I've had an email account continuously for over fifty years now. And most yeah, that's kind of crazy. Yeah,
1: didn't you have like one of the first emails accounts ever?
3: Yeah, we were one of the first to sell <laughs> email to, to anybody. Just a you know the little company here on Henderson Road. And, so uh, Al Gore didn't invent, invent the internet. Uh, <laughs> no. Paul oh. Lambert did. Yeah. Well, no, you know, and another part of that story, uh, uh, I should also say that things like Facebook today, you know, forums and that kind of social media stuff we had years ago on. On CompuServe, we had a service that we called CB, that was like CB radio, where oh. people all over the world could talk to each other. Uh, the first ever online marriage was done on CompuServe's CB service. In, That's in middle, really cool. In the middle 80s, something like that.
0: You're part of history.
3: Yeah. Um, there was a bunch of us, a whole bunch of really smart guys uh, working at CompuServe, you know, event, came up with all those ideas. You know, before the Internet, there, you needed a way to get people onto the service from all over the world. So we had to run our own network um, and we had modems, that, you know, those things that squealed and yeah. made all that noise. We had modem banks all over the country for people to dial into to use our service. And then when the, um, the bell breakup happened in the early 80s, I think it was 1982, 1984, somewhere in through there, um, it gave companies like ours the opportunity to sell our network alone as a, as a service connecting um, other companies to their customers using our network and that became a fairly large business. So we had a, um, it, was a uh, it was just a great business model where we had a network business, an online consumer services business and still a timesharing business going all using the same physical plant but at different times of the day so it was, it was great leverage, very profitable business. Um, that attracted the attention of h and Block who bought us in uh, 1980. Um, and gave us capital to, to grow the company to a global um, operation, and that was a, a great marriage. Up until folks like AOL and so on came along, and uh, we got some real competition. AOL had a business model where they uh, used advertising to support their um,
0: yeah. They would just revenue. send you the internet in the mail,
3: right? And when you got on, <laughs> Back you got in advertising. My day. And uh, the
0: internet came in the mail. <laughs>
3: you know, we operated kind of at a commercial. Uh, service level, they operated at a consumer service level, but in the end, that's what the market wanted. So that started discouraging our block, and that, that's when they sold us and sold our consumer service um, business to AOL and sold the uh, network service that I, I was working in at the time to uh, WorldCom.
1: Okay, when we first met, it would have been around, I don't know, 2007, I guess. I was elected to the school board for the first time in 2005.
3: I remember you handing pencils out in front of. Uh, one of the elementary schools. <laughs> Pencils. <laughs> Pencils. Pencils.
1: Yep.
0: Teeter
3: um,
1: for school board. Teeter for, I still got a box of them in the basement if anybody wants a teeter for school board pencil. Nope. Um, but you started a, it was a blog that was Educate Milliard?
3: Yeah. It was, yeah.
1: And uh, and so talk about the start of that.
3: Um, the start of it was, um, it, it really, if I can retrace steps a little bit, um, sure. you know, my first contact with... anything official about the schools uh, was through HEF actually. Um, One of the uh, leaders of HEF came to my boss at CompuServe, who was a division president, and said, "Uh, since you guys are moving to Hilliard, uh, we wonder if you'd like to be a a sponsor or supporter of our Hilliard Education Foundation and uh, would like a, a seat on our board. And my boss says, well, you know, I, I live in Dublin, but I think I've got a candidate for you. And he called me up and he says, hey, I have an opportunity for you.
0: <laughs> an, um, opportunity. I have an opportunity.
3: An <laughs> opportunity. And uh, put me in contact with, uh, if you know the names, uh, Phil Wade and Tom Juusty. Um, and we sat down for lunch and he told me what HEF was all about. And I said, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd be very glad to, form, uh, to join the board. And so that was my first real contact with the leadership in the community. Uh, in fact, Libby was the school board representative to the... Uh, to HEF at the time. Libby
0: Garrock, the president and CEO of the Hilliard Area Chamber of Commerce, where we have our uh, recording studio. Yeah. (laughs) For those uh, listening at home.
3: Mayor Roger Reynolds was a uh, ex-officio member of the the board, uh, and later uh, uh, Tim Ward, when he became mayor, uh, sat on the the HEF board. So that was my first contact. and then I began paying attention a little bit to economics, which is kind of a, a, an interest to me. um, saying, why, why do my taxes keep going up? Why do they keep putting stuff um, on the ballot, asking for more money? Don't they have enough money already? Why, 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 why? Why do kids need things? Yeah. And, um, you know, not being from Ohio, I didn't really understand anything about how Ohio schools work. In West Virginia, there's one school district for every county, so there's only 55 in the entire state. Um, Here there's 612 or something uh, right now. Uh Uh, So as I was beginning to understand things and uh, you know my um, training, business training uh, taught me how to look at financial statements and kind of dissect them and find out what's going on. You find the truth often of an organization by reading um, their financial statements and particularly the footnotes. Um, And I found things that that I didn't understand and some things that didn't seem like they made sense. Uh, So I started doing uh, more and more research, and then writing this this uh, blog to pass on what I learned to other people. And ultimately, before I I stopped using the blog, I think I'd written four hundred articles. I think four hundred plus articles in the blog. So, and it's still sitting out there doing (laughs) research stuff.
0: I think I read the whole thing in like 2011.
3: Wow. So then um, I don't remember exactly what year that happened when it, but as Facebook became popular I switched over to a Facebook page and published there pretty actively all through the time I was on the school board and not so much now, but occasionally.
1: Well I remember my memories and I, I don't remember the specific issues but you being very critical of the schools at the time. There was some reason I felt some animosity towards Paul Lambert every time he wrote his blog. Yeah. Um, do you remember some of the details? Was it?
0: I, well, you had the attention of the school board. Did you even know that?
1: Um, I think so. But I'm sure he did if you saw me anywhere. <laughs> but, nice.
3: Yeah. Certainly when I decided to run for school board, I found out that you know I had some pretty active opposition. Um, and that the first time I ran, I came in dead last in a race of I don't know how many people were in that. It was, what a, year a, year, it was a year when there was two seats. And uh, there was probably five or six candidates. One was Doug Maggie, you know, so nobody beats Doug Maggie, right? I so, beat him, except Denise. just so you know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I beat him pretty badly. Yeah. That
1: was probably 2007, no, I guess. No, it was 2007.
3: It was right after the, yeah. uh, the teacher renegotiation. Oh, that oh, was, was brutal. Yeah, the other one over the, you know, when health, health care came up. Yeah.
0: No, well, so then did you run again for in 2009 for a 2010 seat? Yes.
3: yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And uh, we ran as a uh, three-person team. And then you were successful that year. Yeah, it was the last. It was a you know three-seat year, and I got the third seat.
0: Was that with you and Lisa Whiting?
1: Well, probably would have been me and Lisa. Yeah, Lisa right. would have finished first. I would have finished second. and yeah. You would have been
0: third. So. Well, well, and then the guy last place still gets on the board. Right, right.
3: That's right. And so, of course, then after that, two more times, the three of us ran together. Yeah. So. And we were elected. I think I came in third in each of those, too, behind you two guys. <laughs> and,
0: and, Paul, honestly just speaking for my uh, – you know, just for me, uh, I think you were a fantastic board member and uh, patient, and you slowly and methodically um, were able to kind of point out the things that you wanted to see changes, and I'm going to bet you got your way on a good chunk of them.
3: Yeah, there was a there were a few things that, that – um, that I feel good about uh, accomplishing. Um, one was, it's just governance stuff, for example, that, that we uh, were doing a better job publishing minutes, doing a better job. Um, I think one of the things that probably annoyed you, Andy, in the early years is that when we would be set, what's called the supported documents, um, before the board meeting, I would post those immediately feeling, you know, they were a public document at that point, And my view was that the reason we had board meetings um, in public, one of the reasons we had board meetings in public was to give the public a chance to come and tell us what they thought of the the legislation we were going to be seeing and how could they know that if they didn't see the same notes that we saw as board members. And um, so that was a battle for quite a while. And ultimately, I remember that we We do do that now. Yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I'm not not sure what I was so worried about. No kidding. uh, Publishing all that stuff. So.
0: Um, so one of the things that I think you've been an advocate for in the district is helping people understand, um, how it's funded and there's a lot of misunderstanding specifically for the people who maybe live in the city of Columbus, but Hilliard school district versus the people who live in the city of Hilliard, um, in the Hilliard school district or, or geez, we've got non Hilliard, uh, Brown township and, Galloway, and we have three, Dublin.
3: Really, all in. Yeah, it's three um, municipalities and five townships.
0: Right, all in in Hilliard, and I think that there's, questions that people they think, oh, if you live in the city of Hilliard, you pay more taxes to the school district than if you don't, um, and you have worked tirelessly to explain that. And I thought maybe we'd give you a few minutes here to talk about that.
3: Um, yeah, if you don't mind the. Uh, I think a, a place we can go here is to, again, this is my tendency to want to deconstruct things back to the to the root. What happened in in, uh, in Ohio and how we ended up with this uh, kind of school district that we have in central Ohio goes back probably close to 100 years. Most importantly, it goes back to the uh, the 50s uh, when there was a couple of important things happened. One is that uh, most people may not know that the... State School Board didn't exist until 1955. It was created then. Uh, State School Board has some members that are appointed by the governor, some members that are elected by the by the public. Uh, That school board is the body that sets school district boundaries. There was a period uh, in the early days when it was normal that as a city expanded they moved the school district boundaries with it. There was a move originated by, I assume, the developers, uh, real estate developers in the period that Got the state school board to decouple this notion of moving school board boundaries, school district boundaries with the city boundaries. So we had you could now Columbus could potentially annex land without moving the, the school district boundary uh, with it. The second big thing that happened then was the development of the uh, regional uh, water sewer system uh, that was largely funded with federal money but it was put under local administrative control of Columbus so in essence Columbus owns that water system and one of the things they were expected to do was to write contracts with all the suburbs to provide water and sewer services to them. The Columbus leadership at the time was primarily a mayor named Jack Sensenbrenner, and said, uh, let's make sure we're not like Cincinnati or Cleveland where we let the, the center city get surrounded and landlocked by the suburbs. Let's make sure that we write these water contracts so that the suburbs can't grow and cut us off from an annexation pass. So all the way around the city, it's, you can almost think of it as like a big flower. Um, there are paths between each suburb for the city of Columbus to annex, and those are dictated by these water contracts. So for example, in our area, the area where um, Totem Mall is, is in Columbus, and the city of Hilliard and the city of Dublin don't touch anywhere because of that annex- annexation path that's preserved between there. Um, that's true all around the city. So, for example, Plaris is in Columbus, Easton is in Columbus, even though you, know, you think of them as being out in the suburbs. So those uh, water contracts, you know, define kind of the boundaries of the, of the uh, suburbs in particular. So Columbus was growing, and many people would be surprised to hear this, but in the uh, early 70s, Columbus City Schools had 115,000 students Uh, It's still the largest school district in uh, Ohio, but it was more than twice the size it is today and regarded as a very good school district.
0: Yeah, that's a
1: lot of kids. 1979 graduate of columbus Whetstone High School right here. There you
3: go. Um, I was barely born then. But there was an issue that was brought (laughs) up, and that's that uh, because Columbus had a policy of um, sending kids to the closest neighborhood schools, and... Um, you know, a whole separate issue is that Columbus in the you know, first part, all the way up into the middle part of the 20th century had um, discriminatory housing um, practices going on, like redlining, blockbusting, some of those kinds of things. Um, neighborhood schools also functionally caused the schools to be segregated because the neighborhoods were segregated. Um, so some outside forces like the ACLU, the um, NAACP, Uh, filed a suit in the federal court here, it's called Pennick versus Board of Education, um, where they claimed that the schools were illegally segregated. The judge, uh, a local judge named Robert Duncan, agreed uh, with that position and uh, found four of the plaintiffs and they uh, ordered that the uh, Columbus schools implement busing to distribute the school, the kids racially all across the city. That immediately um, caused a white flight to the suburbs. And if you look at the enrollment growth in a school district like Hilliard, you see a bump right then when people begin fleeing to the the suburbs. And of course, the developers loved that because that was an opportunity to build a bazillion houses in the suburbs, places like Gulfview Woods, Um, and people began moving out there. Well, the Columbus School Board said, wait a minute, this white flight is going to destroy our school district. It's going to, all the kids with means uh, are going to leave. We're going to be left with just the poor kids and the predominantly the black kids let's go to the state board of education and make an argument that says this is stupid on a bunch of levels one is that it's kind of really anti um, desegregation another is that it will cause the suburbs to ex- expend an enormous amount of money to build schools and hire teachers and all that kind of stuff which when is they unnecessary exist. that you know they're already in Columbus, for example, uh, you know, if if all these kids leave the Columbus schools, we're going to have a bunch of empty buildings. And, you know, a great example of that was Central High School, uh, which is, you know, where um, Kosai is today. But there are a number of of other schools all around the city that were closed that these kids left. So the State Board of Education was inclined to agree with Columbus schools. And so the developers in places like Gulfview Woods, uh, you know, where we had just moved, uh, saw their demand for new homes just stop because people said, Because Gulfview Woods is in the city of Columbus. Um, People said, why do I want to move out of my Whetstone neighborhood or whatever to a place like uh, Gulfview Woods if it's just going to get transferred back into Columbus Schools again?" So let's let this thing settle down. Plus drive farther to work. Yeah. And uh, so it just, um, residential home building just came to a stop. And uh, developers hated that, right? So they begin to ask the lawmakers and the school districts and so on, figure something out so that we can get back to home building again. And the, the solution to that was the win-win agreement that um, set rules for when annexations would cause property transfers. And the basic tenets of the win-win agreement was that any piece of land that was already developed in the city of Columbus, but a suburban school district would stay in the suburban school district. So Gulfview Woods is safe on that regard. However, any new piece of land annexed into the city of Columbus that is undeveloped would shift to the Columbus City Schools. And if we think about in our Hilliard community, we have a couple of examples like that. You know, the big development that's north of Haven Run Road uh, between Avery and Cosgrave, there was annexed into Columbus, and that's all Columbus Schools. So those kids go to Centennial High School.
0: Aren't there some neighborhoods that like are Hilliard on one side of the street and Columbus on the other side of
3: the street? Yeah, the great example is Pinefield Drive down by um, Alton Darby Elementary, yeah. where you know people can look out their back window and, and see their, Alton Darby. Yeah, their their yard borders the school district property, but yet that was by the way that little hunk was developed there. It was annexed to Columbus, Columbus and schools. became Columbus schools. So there's a there's a few of those weird things around. So uh, all that stuff is what led to. Um, but when the win-win agreement was signed by the way the the suburban development just took right off i can show you a curve of enrollment in Hilliard schools and exactly on the year that was signed the enrollment uh, just started to go vertical it doubled over the course of just probably less than 10 years the enrollment doubled in wow. schools. wow
0: and what years were was that
3: that was in the middle 80s
0: so who who would have been our um, superintendent during Dale. that time. Dale was a superintendent.
1: Well, I think Roger Nels would have been the early 80s. Yeah, that could have been. Um, Dale came in after Roger in the in the late 1990s, I think. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it was uh,
3: Roger Nels. Re- Roger Nels that signed the one-one agreement. Yeah.
0: And he had to deal with doubled enrollment in that short of a time.
3: Yeah, we went through the the 90s uh, again before any of us were on the school board, but during the 90s, a new school building was built every single year. Um, Yeah, that's crazy. And not only that, but we hired probably two or 300 teachers during that period.
0: So this is where you start seeing your taxes probably increasing because levies are getting passed and because they have to not just build these buildings, they have to take care of these buildings. Um, Right.
3: So, again, we can end up in a lot of tangents here, but one of the tangents (laughs) you run into is this thing called HB 920, which is a a law that was passed back in the 70s really to deal with the... uh, Regentification of downtown to Cleveland but what HB 920 says basically is that when a levy is passed on a on a parcel of land the amount of uh, tax that's generated never changes regardless of increases in the property value so you can think of it in a macro way As this HB 920 says that a, that a levy only generates a uh, a fixed amount of money and the only way to get more money is, is to pass, to pass another, another levy.
0: I would say that is probably one of the biggest misconceptions. People do not understand that, as they assume as their um, house increases in value that their what they pay in taxes increase.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's not true at all. One one of
1: the best explanations, and this this works better visually, so it's not good podcast. But somebody explained to me an in income tax, which is what cities get there. Um, income from is a steady curve up as the economy increases and people's salaries increase and the more jobs come in it's it's a steady curve up but for a school districts revenue that's based on property taxes because of 920 it's like a stair step
3: and the steps happen when the levies are passed yeah Yeah, that's correct but then people ask well uh, when a new house is built it generates new taxes doesn't that help and it does generate new taxes and adds to the levy, but when a new house is built, it usually also has come in with the kids, right? Right. And so the average cost to educate a kid in a schools is you know, in the twelve, thirteen dollars 13000 range. I don't know exactly what it is this year. Um, about um, a third of that comes from the state, and the rest of it has to be raised locally. Uh, so the uh, amount of money, the, the value of a home, has to be about three hundred and fifty or four hundred thousand dollars to generate enough money to educate just one kid. Um, so uh, you know, it's and then,
0: not. Yeah, and not people aren't just
3: bringing in one kid. Right, and so new homes don't necessarily create the funding to match the growth in kids yeah. in the schools, and that's where every once in a while you have to um, you have to pass a levy to cover that cover that gap.
0: And there are other ways of doing that too, right? Businesses,
3: yeah, business yeah. business income. Um, that all depends on how our partners in the city um, go about tax abatements and tips. And That's those why I threw that out there. I was yeah, going to I see if it that. started a fight. Between <laughs> you
1: two. We might have to have a whole other podcast to talk about <laughs> uh, development and tips and tax abatements and such. So, yeah, I've been on both sides of that now, I'm, I'm learning a lot. Good. It's so, amazing how
3: that happens when you get elected to a body. Yeah, yeah, it does. The, um, yeah so you know the revenue that we get will depend on the the economic development deal that's done by the cities Um, and we're really fortunate here that the people who are sitting on the city council now um, understand this i think better than um, previous generations of the city council and so uh, the relationship is really good
1: Um, that's the whole reason i ran for city council after school board because i was tired of them not understanding the difficulty schools have
3: right And um, I won't try to uh, quote exact numbers because I don't know that now, but I've had people come to me often say, um, what good is this Amazon data center development in Hilliard when they had all their taxes abated? Um, The truth is that the deal is more complex than that, that there's a side uh, economic development deal that includes the the schools, where the schools receive revenue based on the size of the buildings that are built. And it will ultimately make, uh, you know, Amazon, the largest commercial enterprise in in Hilliard, and um, they're already, I, I, again, I, I caution myself, I guess, I'm quoting numbers, but it's well over a million dollars a year now in, in revenue. I think it's several million dollars a year in revenue from Amazon.
1: Oh, pardon the siren. We are broadcasting from downtown Hilliard. This and is
0: not new if, this is, if you're driving.
3: Yeah. So I think, if, you know, if I made the other... Part of the story is well, why do the costs keep going up to run the schools? Um, why, why is there a cost of so much per kid and why does that number continue to keep going up? Well, the truth is that our schools, you know, you can think of the buildings and the football fields and all that kind of sure. stuff, but really schools are, about, it, schools are about the teachers. Um, the payroll for the school district is going to be uh, $200 million a year here. Pretty soon the school district was by far the largest employer um, in the community.
0: Um, I think we found out there's 2,000 employees, is yeah, that what yeah, there's a, Superintendent Dave Stewart told us?
1: Yeah, I think so, and, and, and as part of that largest employer, um, it's only about 35 to 40% of the kids that go to the Hilliard City Schools come from the city of Hilliard, yet the school district has built all but a couple of their buildings within the city limits. Right. so the city reaps all those the city
0: Some of additional
3: benefits reaps the
1: benefits of the income tax well that's right. a good point
3: right so the you know that most of the employees other than the administrative staff in the school district are represented by uh, one of two unions and um, those uh, with those unions are negotiated collective bargaining agreements that specify the uh, the pay structure and benefits and so on for the uh, for the employees those get renegotiated about every three years Uh, and in that is a structure that specifies how the teachers get uh, pay increases from year to year Uh, it's um, it's not an easy thing to change I came on the board saying we can change this thing Um, (laughs) not so easy Um, but we have made some changes uh, to the pay structure over the year the teachers have been been great to work with to to make changes uh, to make this uh, more sustainable but um, in in just Pure terms, those costs go up about 4% a year. And you do the math, it's uh, seven or eight million new dollars are needed every year to fund the increases in compensation and benefits in our district. So that's where the money goes. Um, and so we have a choice, and it's not any different in Hillary than it is any other school district in Ohio. The numbers may be different. My daughter teaches up in Fremont. Their pay structure looks exactly like ours, except the numbers are slightly smaller because it's a lower cost of living. There are some communities in Ohio where the teachers get paid um, a great deal more um, so you know we're right in the ballpark of where teachers are, are paid in our in our state and again that number goes up every year so every once in a while we need a levy to, to pay for that I, I've always thought it's a good thing that this HB 920 law says the the revenue doesn't go up automatically unless the voters decide to, to raise their taxes sure. Um, that's a because, good thing. Yeah. But it also puts a burden on the voters to be savvy enough about what's going on here. Right. To not just set it every time a levy's on there and says I have Say my no, taxes I'm not to go gonna, I'm right, I'm up, I'm not gonna pay for
0: it.
3: Because not passing the levy is the same thing as a um, pay cut, if you will. Uh, the because the compensation will go up anyway whether we pass the levy. The only way to keep the payroll within the uh, the funding is to let Fire people teachers, off. Yeah. yeah.
1: So Mm -hmm. another thing about 920 that I learned, uh, you know, in my career, I worked for city government with the city of Columbus. I worked for Franklin County government with the county auditor's office, and I worked for the state government with the Ohio Department of Transportation, um, who weren't subject to having to go to the voters every four years to get approval of new taxes, Um, again, funded by income taxes that slowly go up. our school district, I can speak for Hilliards, but I, I, I bet everybody's like this, is much more accountable with tax dollars, because they have to justify it every four years. Um, there's no dead weight at the Hilliard City Schools, or if there is, very little. I mean, you can't say there's no dead weight anyway, but but, right, but I, there is. Paul
0: looked for it. Let's yeah, hear what all, Paul says. We
1: all looked for it, and uh, it, it really makes the school district incredibly accountable yeah. to spend tax dollars wisely.
3: Yeah, I mean, this This goes all, I didn't know Roger Mills as well, though he was the superintendent when my kids started school. Uh, of course, I knew uh, Dale pretty well. Um, by the way, I, I don't know if Dale listens to this, but one of the um, one of the best things about my relationship, evolution with Dale over the years is that in the beginning he, he hated me as much as he could hate anybody that could possibly run for school board and uh, campaigned pretty actively against me. The last time I ran, I dropped by his house to uh, get my petition signed, and he asked me if I wanted a campaign contribution. and I thought <laughs>
0: that is a this that, is, that is an amazing change.
3: It's yes. an amazing evolution. So Dale's become a, you know, very I think
1: important. you evolved a little bit also during oh, that time. Yeah,
3: yeah undoubtedly, <laughs> undoubtedly. So, uh, we, so all, we all grow up.
0: Can we get to the bottom line answer? Three.
3: Three. I don't,
0: I don't know. It's forty-two. Um, do people who live in the city of Hilliard pay more taxes for the school district than the people who live in Columbus no. or anywhere
3: else? No, If you, uh, regardless of where you live in a school district, be it Dublin, Columbus, Hilliard, one of the townships, uh, the amount you pay for school tax is exactly the same rate. Where it's different is that if you live in the city of Columbus, and that's the only exception I can think of here, um, you don't have to pay the township taxes that the rest of us do um, in order to fund the fire department, right. the fire and EMS services, uh, because in the city of Columbus, the fire is provided by the City of Columbus Fire Department, which is funded through their um, income tax and other other revenue sources. So people who live in the city of Columbus aren't paying township taxes, any appreciable township taxes, and that's the reason their taxes are less. There's no difference in the uh, in the school tax.
0: And oh. I think that is the final word on that. So if you're listening, no. Uh, They may pay less overall, but that's probably in some ways not just a function of um, the township issue, but maybe value, home value, ultimately. Although these days, I don't think there's a difference. I think everybody's house is crazy right now.
3: You know, another angle on that issue is uh, every once in a while we hear people say, why does Hilliard Schools continue to annex these parcels that are in Columbus? um, there's a couple of things, you know, wrong with that assertion. One is that school districts don't annex anything. Yeah. Any, there's any time. no
0: governmental authority to do that.
3: Right. Uh, the other is that these parcels that are today in Columbus schools have been in the Hilliard school district or its predecessors for a hundred years. Yeah. Those school boundaries, uh, you know, never move out. Uh, sometimes they're, they're drawn in as we talked about with the, uh, the win-win agreement. And by the way, the win-win agreement has now been sunset, so all the, all the school district boundaries are frozen where they were on that date. I want to say I think we all three voted on that. We it's did. Twenty seventeen. Um, so all the school district boundaries were frozen, and as I predicted it would happen, uh, the very first thing we saw was the development of the sugar property right. down at the corner of Alton Darby and um, and uh, Renner, uh, which is in the area that had that been annexed while the win-win agreement was in it would have gone to Columbus Schools. So, of course, it never developed. And as soon as the win-win agreement froze the school district boundaries and kept that in Norwich Schools, now there's going to be 700 houses there. Yep.
0: It's crazy.
1: Yep. Well, Paul, it's been great having you. Um, Thanks for asking. I tell people all the time, the, the school board that we had with uh, Heather Keck, Paul Lambert, myself, Doug Maggie, and Lisa Listen, Whiting was just a great board to work with we all we, we were a long way from all being on the same page or all agreeing Yeah, with we each didn't other. always
0: vote the same for sure um,
1: but we always communicated we always listened to each other and and I think we did a lot of good things for the school district while we were there. Um, your knowledge on this stuff is great. You you will be a repeat visitor to our podcast Yikes. as issues come up because oh you there's, did great. There's a lot more stuff we can talk about yeah. uh, that, that you're very well informed on. I, I sent Paul a question just a week or two ago about about school taxes and I had two properties. I go why do these differ? I got a two two and a half page answer that I didn't really understand, but I knew that but Paul you knew was that right. the answer
0: was correct. <laughs>
1: so I appreciate it. And, yeah. uh, thanks for joining us. Would Thank you.
0: Guys,